Well, on this Pam Sunday morning, I want to draw your attention to some of the words that you find in the 12th verse of this 12th chapter of John's Gospel. The words that I am drawing your attention to are simply these. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that, that place which was so strategic in the Old Testament story, that place which was now ruled and governed by Rome. It was to this historic city that, that Jesus now comes in triumph, but soon to experience tragedy. For within a week, Jesus would be dead. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And this morning I simply want to tease out uh, three truths for our own, I trust, advocation and encouragement this morning. And if you want an outline, it is simply this, that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem as covenantly agreed as prophetically announced and as eternally appointed. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem as covenantly agreed. You see, God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. It is his faithfulness to his own words, which is the very foundation of the unfolding drama of redemption. If you go way back to the book of Genesis and to the 15th chapter, there we read of God cutting a covenant with Abraham. And it is that covenant, it is that agreement, it is that contract which then became the the motivating factor in God's redemption of Israel from the Egyptian bondage. Again, you go to Exodus, the second chapter, and you find that God remembered the covenant that he had cut with Abraham. And because of his commitment to his word, he redeems his people. And then as as history continues to unfold, you come to Mary's songs and you come to Zechariah's prophecy. And there, right at the very coming of Christ into the world, you see that 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 coming is, is centered and based upon that covenant which God had made at the beginning with Abraham. Mary sings in her Magnificat of, of God's mercies to his people because of his promise to Abraham. And Zechariah prophecies anchored in what God had said way back in those dark times of history that the light of the gospel now would come in his son. So that the very incarnation of Christ was, was cast within the context of a divine 
covenant. But now, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, where in experiencing and hearing the the shouts of exultation, yet awaiting those cries of crucifixion, within this, this thrust, within this lengthening shadow of crucifixion, here again, we see what God was going to do as far as the redemption of sinful men and women is concerned. We see it within the context and the framework of a covenant. You have your Bibles with you, I trust, this morning. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews and the 13th chapter. The concluding words of this this great book. Hebrews Chapter 13, and I'm reading verse 20. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Notice this, the element, the aspect, the truth of Christ's death and resurrection, again linked with and inseparably connected to a covenant, the blood of the everlasting or eternal covenant. In 1859, the great prince of preachers, C.H. Spurgeon, preached on this particular text. The sermon is entitled, The Blood of the Everlasting Covenant. And in his message, Spurgeon points to the the Father's side of this covenant, where the Father promises to give a people to his Son, who would be forgiven, who would be adopted, and who shall reign with Christ eternally. The very truths that are brought out by our Savior in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. So that on the Father's side of this covenant, you have the Father affirming the work of redemption. Spurgeon went on to speak about the Holy Spirit's side to this agreement. That the Holy Spirit agreed that he would come and that he would quicken, that he would convict of sin, that he would illuminate the darkened mind of sinful men and women, show them their great need of a Savior, and then show them a Savior who was able to save them to the uttermost, who would grant them every grace needful and necessary to come to faith in Christ Jesus. So that on the Spirit side, We see the Spirit promising in this covenant that he would apply the work of redemption. And thus, the Son, the Son of God promises to come, to become a man amongst men, to live a life of perfect obedience to God's law, to give himself a ransom for many, to be crucified, To be raised on the third day. So that on the son's side of this covenant. Redemption would be 
accomplished. These were some of the elements, some of the aspects of that that sermon that Spurgeon preached. And we can ask, well, was he true to the text? Or was he just being carried away by a, a vivid imagination? Well, I think one can answer quite readily by only thinking about Paul's introductory comments in his letter to the Ephesians. Because I'm sure that you have noticed as you've read and studied and meditated upon that very first chapter of Ephesians. Paul the Apostle sets out the, the, the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. He begins with the selection by the Father. And then he goes on to deal with the salvation by the Son. And then the, the third part of that first chapter the sealing by the Spirit. Now, my point is simply this, beloved, that in Jesus coming to Jerusalem, we see the fulfillment of that eternal covenant, that eternal agreement, that he was coming into Jerusalem to do what he had promised the Father and the Spirit, and eternity. And thus, flowing from that covenant, and as part of that covenant arrangement and agreements, he came to Jerusalem with a commission. With a commission. John chapter 20 and verse 21. Some of you will recognize the words and remember them so well. John chapter 20 and verse 21. As the Father hath sent me, even so I send you. As the Father has sent me. Here was this commission that found its source in that eternal covenant. You go back to John chapter 17, this this chapter that gives to us what really is the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to the 18th verse of this 17th chapter. Verse 18, as Jesus is praying, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Here is our Savior's prayer. Here is his acknowledgement that he has been sent on a mission. There's a covenant agreement. And flowing out of that comes this commission that Jesus comes to Jerusalem under orders. He comes to fulfill that eternal covenant. He comes in order to fulfill that mission given to him to be the savior of sinners. And so we see him coming to Jerusalem in order to obey heaven's command. Heaven's command. For what was he commanded to do? Staying in John's gospel, come back with me to chapter 4 and verse 34. John chapter 4 and verse 34. John chapter 4 and verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish his work. Why has he come? To do his will. Go over to the next chapter. Chapter 5 and verse 30. Chapter 5 and verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. My friends, here is the submission of the Son to the Father in order that there would be the fulfilling of the terms agreed upon by the triune God in that occasion when they met and cut this covenant, this covenant which was eternal, the blood of the eternal covenant. And therefore, it is no wonder then That Jesus spoke of coming to Jerusalem as to that which was imperative. Imperative and determined. You only have to think back of the gospel writers and those occasions when Jesus would speak to his disciples and he would say, we, I must go to Jerusalem and I must suffer and I must bleed and I must die and I must rise again on the third day. There was an imperative to it because he was under orders, he was under commission. He had been part of that covenantal arrangement made in all eternity. And he comes, as Luke tells us, as it was determined and as Peter preached the day of Pentecost. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem as agreed in that Trinitarian covenant. He comes as agreed. But then secondly, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem as announced prophetically. Because you notice here in this 12th chapter of John, that John goes on to record these words in verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. This is John now bringing light into this passage. But when Jesus was glorified, and when they had remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The words of verse 13 are, of course, the words taken and that Christopher has reminded us of this morning. Those words from the Psalm 118. Jesus is anchoring what he's about to accomplish in what was written about him. D.A. Carson, commenting on this passage, says, Jesus then arranges for the ride on the ass, thereby self-consciously fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, Verse 9. And the significance of this arrangement and its quotation here is fourfold. 
First of all, Jesus does not come into Jerusalem riding on a war horse. But he comes presenting himself as a king who comes in peace, gentle, and riding on a donkey. Secondly, the coming of this gentle king is associated with the cessation of war. So that Jesus was never a member of the zealots. He was the king of peace. And so thirdly, the coming of this gentle king is associated with the proclamation of peace to the nations. And so fourthly, the coming of the gentle king is associated with the blood of God's covenant that speaks of release for the prisoners. A theme that is very precious to John. One only has to read the eighth chapter of his gospel. But again, the point is, Jesus coming to Jerusalem had been announced centuries before. That through the lips of his prophets, God had spoken of this this glorious invasion of earth by heaven's beloved Son and Sovereign. So that the Old Testament contains a most wonderful chain of prophecies concerning the, the very person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. For as Christ Jesus comes, he comes as the one who is at the very center of God's revelation. Because all of the scriptures speak of him and point to him so that we might believe in him. And so what we find are prophecies, but prophecies not simply pertaining to the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. But prophecies that have to do with the very doing and dying of Christ Jesus. We see the kind of person he was. We understand something of the work he was accomplished. When we look at some of the people in the Old Testament. You look at Joseph. Surely a type of Christ. You look at the commander of the Lord's army who appeared to Joshua. Or you look at various places that are referred to in the Old Testament. You think of the tabernacle, its function, its features, its furnishings, all pointing to him who himself would come and tabernacle amongst us. You look at the various features that are brought out, or procedures rather, that are pointed to in the Old Testament. The Day of Atonement. So that in promises and in predictions and in prophecies such as you get here in John 12, we learn that he was to come into Jerusalem according to God's word. And of course, the great illustration, the great example of Christ's coming being wedded to the Old Testament is the Gospel of Matthew. 
You read through that gospel and what do you find? Just as it is written, just as it is written, just as the prophet said again and again and again. Matthew is designing this gospel for Jewish people so that they know that Jesus Christ has come as the Messiah who was spoken of centuries before. He was coming to Jerusalem as covenantly agreed, as prophetically announced. And then thirdly, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem as eternally appointed. Because in his coming, we see that the display of God's sovereignty as to the when of his coming, as to the why of his coming, as to the how of his coming. As to the, to the when, we see the valediction, we see the endorsement by one particular term that is employed by, by John or rather recorded by John in his gospel. I'm sure as you have read through the Gospels of John, you've been struck by the number of occasions Jesus would do something and then he would say, "Ah, but my hour is not yet. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But when you get to chapter 12 and verse 20, what happens? Look at the text. John 12 and verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew Philip and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. You go over to chapter 13 and verse 1. You go over to chapter 17 and verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. The hour, a predetermined time. A climactic time, a dramatic time, the hour has come. The time for Christ's death, burial and resurrection. The hinge of history, the hour of passion and resurrection and glorification. The hour has come for the Son to demonstrate His joyful submission to the Father. And his absolute delight in depending upon the Father. The hour has now come. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Everything leads up to this hour. Everything eventuates from that hour. It was the point in which everything that God had planned depended And if there were failure at this point, everything would fail. Hence, our Lord's prayer to the Father. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify thee. 
He comes at the time appointed. He comes to Jerusalem just at the perfect time. But therefore we can ask the question, why why choose this time? Why choose this day to come to Jerusalem? Well, what were the people in Jerusalem and the thousands of pilgrims who had come up to Jerusalem? What were they doing on this particular day? They were selecting and choosing the lambs which they would offer sacrifice at Passover. This was the day they would choose their lambs that they would give up to the priests. And while a large crowd cried out, Hosanna! And saw Jesus as a mighty sovereign. And some, because of the palm branches, the indication, the application, the reference is to a a strong and mighty soldier. While the crowd is crying out, the Father is declaring This is my lamb. While you are selecting yours, here is mine. Here is the lamb which I have chosen. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The one appointed in eternity and agreed upon personally at that council where that covenant was cut. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the very day that people were choosing their lambs. And the Father declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how was he going to do that? How would that be accomplished? He gives his life a ransom for many He lays down his life. For the glory of the Father, he completes the work that had been given to him away back in that eternal covenant. He comes to Jerusalem as appointed eternally. The Paschal Lamb of God appointed, to use the words from that glorious old hymn, Hail Thou Once Despised Jesus. He comes as God's Lamb. And in saying that, we're saying something so significant and so enormous. For being God's lamb, it points to the aspect of sacrifice. Christ's death on the cross was the fulfillment of the promise of all the sacrifices of lambs and goats and birds and bulls that had been made through the centuries according to the law of Moses. His was going to be the sacrifice to which all other sacrifices had pointed It pointed to sacrifice. That's why the lamb was given. That's why the lamb was selected. That's why the lamb has been sent. But then it points also to the aspect of substitution. Because in the Old Testament sacrifice, the animal was killed in the place of the worshipper. 
It died, as it were, for the worshiper in his stead and in his place. And so we remember the words of the Apostle Paul, Christ died for us. That little word for indicating meaning and pointing to, he died on our behalf. Or the very words of our Lord himself. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Again, that little word pointing to in the place of. In other words, in his death, Jesus was representing his people. Putting himself in their place. Dying in their stead. He was his people's paschal lamb. A sacrifice, a substitution, where suffering was involved. For Christ's death was not only an act of substitution, but penal substitution. That is, he suffered the punishment due his people because of their sin. And this, the suffering of the Savior was, was not merely physical. It was emotional. It was relational. For he experienced what none other has had ever experienced or has ever experienced. He knew what it was to have his perfect relationship with the Father ruptured. He who had been with God in the beginning, face to face, eyeball to eyeball with God from the beginning, all of a sudden, the Father turns his face away. And the Son endures that agony and thus that cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the Lamb of God, to bleed and to die. To make atonement for sin. To satisfy the wrath of God. And to purchase and procure a people. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. He comes in order to pay the price for his people. So that they would know what it is to have peace with God. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He comes to Jerusalem. In complete Submission to that eternal decree. For Jesus' sacrifice was not man's sacrifice to God, but God gave him up. The Son was God's own gift to his people. Because who was it that put Christ on the cross? It was the Father. It was the Father who nailed him there. The sinful men and women. And Christ laid down his life. No man took it from him. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what does it mean to us this morning? 
How can I wrap it up? What does it mean to us? Well, what does it mean to those of us who claim to be followers of this Lamb? What does it mean to those of us who claim to be followers of Christ? Does the knowledge of Christ dying for our sins drive us to him daily? Because we are learning more and more about the wickedness of our own hearts. You see, sanctification is not growing thinking that you're getting better and better, beloved. Sanctification is growing understanding you're feeling worse and worse. You think you understood something about sin when you're converted? Wait until you've been a Christian for a while. And you'll learn more and more what sin is like. And that drives us ought to drive us to the Savior. You see, has, has my faith in Christ as wounded for, for my transgressions and bruised for my iniquities, has that motivated me to seek fervently by God's grace to put away that sin which so easily entangles? Because, beloved, is, is it not true here this morning? I really, I don't know you and you really don't know me. But is it not true that we're not as good as we think we are? In fact, as Steve Brown, who I enjoy so much, says, we are a lot worse than we think we are. We may come Sunday morning here and we may look like the greatest saints that have ever trod this earth, but aren't you so glad that the person beside you can't read your heart? That they do not know what you are really like. To put it simply and plainly, beloved, does my faith in Christ, in heaven's Lamb, have a purifying influence in my life? What does it mean for me that Jesus came to Jerusalem? Because how we answer those questions will tell us the truth about our spirituality. But then maybe you're here this morning and you're you're not a follower yet of Jesus. What does this coming mean to you? Well, if I may take the words of John 10. The Lamb of God has come, the Master. He has come and he's calling for you. He's calling for you to come to him that you might know his pardon for that sin that marks and mars your life. That sin of being indifferent to God. That sin of finding no joy in God. That sin of not loving him with all of your heart that always is there. Jesus comes to you this morning as he came to Jerusalem and he comes to call you to himself that you might know his pardon and that you might know his peace, that you might know what it is to be saved from the wrath to come. And he calls you to come just as you are, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I Come, to come to him, to delight in him with all your heart, and to find in him all that you've been looking for all through life, 
and to realize that we've been made that we might enjoy and glorify God forever. And so if you've never known the Savior, if you've never come to this one who came, I simply close with these words. Come. Come. And welcome to Jesus. May God bless his word to us this morning.